You're listening to Cloud9, where Bahaiteachings.org interviews artists from around the globe to learn about what inspires, uplifts, and motivates them to make a positive contribution to the world. My name is Shadi Talui Wallace. There's no question that climate change is one of the most pressing issues of our generation. Rising global temperatures and sea levels, unethical and unsustainable farming and agricultural practices, polluted air quality, floods, fires, hurricanes, droughts and landslides are becoming all too common daily occurrences. They're not only affecting the world's most vulnerable communities and species, but as Sir David Edinburgh recently put it in his alarming documentary called Our Planet, the future existence of the entire natural world. I'm sure that like me, many of you have also made conscious changes to your daily lives and reduce your impact on the planet. For instance, a few years ago, I made the change to a predominantly plant-based diet. I began to purchase more ethical brands, thrift more, and I got back into making and altering my own clothes. I started to walk to the store and shop locally and organically as best as I could. My husband and I started to separate our recycling way more vigilantly, carrying reusable bags and containers, and we searched for ways to be more energy efficient around our home. We made a conscious effort to drive less and opted instead for more walks, mass transit, and bike rides. All of this conscious effort to live a more environmentally sustainable life and the attempts of reducing our footprint today for future generations to thrive tomorrow. But what about after we're gone? What happens when we die? And how can our death leave the least impact on the earth? What will be our eco-legacy? The thought had never crossed my mind until meeting Courtney Gussick, the founder of Pahiki Eco Caskets. Located on the island of Oahu in Hawaii, Pahiki Eco Caskets are crafted by hand out of 100% untreated, locally sourced and salvaged woods. They're part of a growing industry focused on environmental stewardship in death care, also known as the Green Death Movement. Following a career as a test engineer for a large Silicon Valley tech company, Courtney moved to her native Hawaii and started Pahiki Eco Caskets in her backyard only a couple years ago. Pahiki, which translates to pass quietly, go lightly, touch gently, was born out of a personal and intimate experience with the passing of Courtney's father, Troy and today is committed to crafting high-quality, low-impact caskets, making them accessible to all. In this episode of Cloud9, we sit down with Courtney to learn more about her journey into the death care space and her motivations behind starting Pahiki Eco Caskets in her traditional homeland. We'll contrast this by taking an opportunity to learn more about prominent death care practices today and their implications on the environment We'll explore the eternal nature of the soul from a Baha'i perspective and how life after death is an essential part of the human condition and a reflection of humanity's inherent oneness. We'll also examine Baha'i burial practices and laws in relation to environmental sustainability, reflect on how one can prepare for death, and learn of Courtney's hopes and dreams for the future. 
Courtney, a warm welcome to Cloud9. Thank you. So, Courtney, how does someone pivot from a career as a test engineer for a Silicon Valley company to building eco-caskets in Oahu? Could you walk us through some of those pivotal moments that informed this journey, how Pahiki was more or less born out of these circumstances, and how this informs your mission and approach today? Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me first. About 10 years ago, when we found out that my dad had very late-stage pancreatic cancer um, and his death was imminent, our family started to explore and kind of examine for the first time what the eco implications were of our death care practices. The caskets that were being offered in funeral homes were largely made out of steel, um, polyester, plastic, uh, lacquer, a lot of impervious materials that I'm pretty confident none of us would ever dig a hole in our backyard and bury otherwise on any other day of the year. And when we really started examining what our family's principles were culturally and environmentally, it just felt very incongruent with the way that my dad had and my mom had raised us and were really striving for our whole childhoods and lives to sort of instill in us this sense of leaving a very light touch on the earth and really having a, a symbiotic relationship as possible with our environment. And so when we got to the juncture of actually making logistical decisions to bury my dad, which was his wish, we were able to really come together as a family and kind of examine again what our principles were um, and carry out a very green eco burial for my dad. At that moment, I, I really started thinking, what are, exponentially speaking, how many people die every year in the U.S.? How many are cremated? How many are buried? What does that look like? You know, if these steel caskets are the most commonplace option in these funeral homes, and funeral homes are the you know, primary source that families go to in times of need and death, what, what is everyone else doing? And, and kind of what is the impact of that on a more exponential scale? So I just kind of went down a Google rabbit hole and started researching, finding how many, you know, 2.3 million people die every year in the U.S. Um, about 60% of them are buried, 40% cremated, et cetera, et cetera. And just looking at this like massive, incredible sustainability crisis that was literally hidden in plain sight. I mean, it's all around us. It's, you know, our death is something that visits every human being, um, you know, and most communities have cemeteries in them. And so all around us, we have this like, incredibly environmentally impactful practices that at least our family and our community that we're in had never really addressed or talked about before. And so I had it in my mind at the time that I don't know where this came from because I had zero woodworking experience, but I had decided at the time that because caskets were the primary sort of vessel and vehicle for both burial and actually turns out cremation as well, that I wanted to start. I didn't even necessarily think of it as a company, but I just felt like I was very drawn to this concept of creating um, you know, a beautiful vessel that was eco-conscious and could abide by very simple environmental principles that were very relatable to people, you know, irrespective of their culture, of their geography, things that are just very simple, um, abiding by principles of would you bury this in your backyard any other day of the year, you know, and understanding what the implications are for the environment. What are we actually burying? What are we burning? And so at the time, you know, a combination of like incredible grief that was washing over me 
and a lack of material resources, I kind of had to just put it in the recesses of my mind and just felt like, you know, one day when I have the bandwidth and I have the resources, I really want to start an eco-casket company and at least give people one among many other options, you know, in the kind of common death space marketplace, you know, opportunities to maintain and increase the level of continuity between our eco-conscious lifestyles and aspirations and the death space, because there's quite a disconnect there. And so fast forward a few years, I ended up getting a really wonderful job in Silicon Valley, really appreciated my team. I was doing work that I enjoyed and I felt, you know, in a very traditional way, happy. Um, working there and kind of existing in that space, you know, regardless of how happy I felt sort of on the outside, I kind of always had it running in the back of my mind that my real calling essentially was, you know, creating these eco-conscious casket vessels for families and for other humans. And so through a lot of prototyping in my backyard, um, many Many, many hours of watching YouTube videos to learn basic woodworking skills, um, doing what I was advised against doing by a thousand people, which was <laughs> taking um, a loan out against myself and my 401k to purchase tools, just basic workshop tools that I needed. Mm -hmm. um, and really just started prototyping. And I did that for about a year in my backyard. And it took about six months to get a really viable product i mean viable you know in this sense meant you know is it a box that can contain a body and it is it dignified and then once i kind of got confident in the prototyping stage you know all the while sort of in my mind and i feel like in my soul this sense was building of like you know this is your calling you know you know this is your calling and you know i i really thought about if i stepped back five years from then and didn't respond to that calling, would I be happy? I really thought to myself, you know, I have this great opportunity at this existing company and I have this, you know, potentially tremendous opportunity in front of me for this fulfillment in a, in a very different, you know, outward way. Um, and just really asked myself the question of like, if you know you don't listen to this calling, are you going to feel happy in the future? Um, and the answer was, absolutely not. And I basically just said as much to my boss. I just told him, you know, I know that this is my calling and I know this is, you know, what I'm intended to do on this earth. And I feel like if I don't respond to it, I don't know that my life is going to be happy and fulfilled in the same way. The whole team was very gracious and he was very gracious and just said, I wish you could see your face right now. <laughs> he said, it's all over your face. I, I, I get it. I understand. <laughs> So I was able to, with more clarity and confidence than I can honestly say I have ever had about anything else in my entire life, walked away from, you know, a very cozy, safe place in Silicon Valley and sort of stepped into this, you know, whole other unknown space that felt entirely out of reach in some ways and like completely in my heart in other ways. Hmm. Could you also share why you had to leave California and move to Hawaii to be able to fulfill this, this newfound dream? So there are a few reasons, some of them spiritual, some of them um, cultural, and some of them 
just kind of more on the pragmatic side, why I moved back to Hawaii to actually start this. Um, so the first was, um, it is my absolute heart and soul place on earth. It makes my heart sing. Um, it's where my dad's family is originally from. And so just, I mean, even culturally, I'm the most comfortable there and the most familiar. <clears throat> but pragmatically speaking, starting Pahiki in Hawaii, part of it was actually just for um, almost a social experiment. So Hawaii is the most isolated landmass on earth, and it's the most import dependent state in the US. So my logic going in was, if I can find a way to source um, all the raw materials we need and create supply chains, you know, in this super isolated place that is otherwise so entirely dependent on external imports, if we can maintain and, and manage our death care needs in Hawaii alone with just our resources there, I just thought to myself, imagine the implications for all the other states, you know, especially the states that are, um, you know, more well-resourced or have larger salvaged wood industries than we do, or, um, you know, a variety of other material resources needed. So I really wanted to be able to show myself and the community and the wider community that, you know, this place that is otherwise seen as so dependent actually can not just manage, but thrive in this very intimate, important space of death um, just by using our own resources. And of course, you know, the, the flow on effects of that are, you know, creating these really rich communities of arborists and sawyers and other woodworkers and people who um, now are such an integral part of our community who, you know, are also able to contribute their own like, you know, incredible spirit and passion and interest and love into a space that they probably didn't ever think they would be supporting or finding themselves in either. <laughs> um, doing this really meaningful, beautiful work for families that they'll probably never even meet, which I think is, you know, incredibly special. Could you explain how the death and burial space operates today? In particular, what are the environmental implications of, say, embalming and the types of coffins? You've already kind of mentioned the metals and things um, that are in the coffins, but the types of coffins that are readily available and ways that coffins are commonly interred in the earth, such as concrete vaults that seem to be mandatory in many cemeteries. These are things that I personally didn't know much about, but could you just uh, break that down just a little bit for us? So in the U.S., the death care industry is a $20 billion a year moneymaker, which is absolutely absurd and asinine. <laughs> and it's, I would say the most egregious part of it is, and the saddest part is that because we have such limited knowledge and information and access and engagement, essentially in the death space, we don't realize that we're the ones paying $20 billion to pollute the earth and death. That's the saddest part to me. It's, you know, all these well-intentioned humans mm -hmm. unwittingly funding the degradation of mama earth. The death care industry as it stands now is, it's about in the U S it's about 60% burial, 40% cremation. Um, and when people opt to have open caskets, there are uh, embalmed and embalming fluid is this like hypertoxic cocktail of formaldehyde, um, all these solvents and chemicals. And it's essentially designed to 
give the body an animate look for a funeral. You know, and it's a very temporary sort of situation. And it's really just for the kind of pseudo benefit of the living, which is even more Mm -hmm. sad. And the caskets that are currently on the market, I mean, by and large, steel caskets are becoming extremely popular because they can produce them very cheaply Mm -hmm. and and very large um, factories. And so they're primarily made out of steel. They still do make wooden caskets as well. Um, A lot of them, unfortunately, are like this formaldehyde press board with this veneer over the top and then it has lacquer and all these you know metal embellishments Hmm. Um, and actually in the u.s every year just with the steel caskets and the just with the steel caskets alone we bury enough steel to rebuild the golden gate bridge so every single year we could rebuild that phenomenal absolutely massive bridge in san francisco just with casket steel alone it's it's really incredible um, and the embalming fluid, we bury about 800,000 gallons of that per year, which just to give some perspective, that's about 1.2 Olympic swimming pools just filled with these toxins that are used for, wow. you know, 25 minute viewing crazy. of the body for the comfort of the living. Wow. That's so crazy. And then the there's also this concrete vault situation that I didn't know about. Yeah. So just to nerd out a bit more, it's 2.3 <laughs> billion tons of concrete that we actually enter every year in the U.S. just in the burial vaults. And the concept of the burial vaults um, is that the casket will go inside and they're capped. And then it's intended to sort of maintain landscaping integrity. So they want to make sure that, you know, when the large lawnmowers go over to keep these well-manicured cemeteries, that there's no depression in the land from when the casket starts to break down. So what it actually does is create the situation where neither the casket nor the body actually ever reach the earth. So we're taking these, these time capsules, essentially, these toxic time capsules and placing them inside the earth so that we can mow the lawn easier <laughs> and <laughs> so that there, there aren't any, um, anything that would be considered shocking or an eyesore to a person who wants to come to these, you know, very well manicured cemeteries to visit their loved one. Wow. Well, thank you for explaining that. So some listeners might be wondering why an arts focused podcast is also talking about <laughs> caskets and the afterlife. <laughs> So I wanted to bring our conversation back to this idea of craftsmanship, beauty, and tradition. I feel that so much of your work as a casket builder and the efforts with Pahiki are centered around the following words of the founder of the Baha'i Faith, Baha'u'llah, where he says, One of the names of God is the fashioner. He loveth craftsmanship. Craftsmanship is a book among the books of divine sciences and a treasure among the treasures of his heavenly wisdom. You started off by teaching yourself how to build caskets by watching YouTube videos and now have a team of craftspeople working with you at Pahiki. So I'd love to learn how aspects of craftsmanship, beauty, prayer, and meditation fall into your creative practice and how casket building of this type connects you to aspects of your indigenous heritage and custodianship of the land. Oh, I love this question or these questions rather. Um, one thing that I think is, has been really incredible with the crafting process at Pohiki is really making a distinction between 
say a product like a casket, having, you know, structural integrity, a, you know, a beautiful aesthetic to it, things that are very um, tangible and very obvious, and that being part of the craft and the craftsmanship, and then kind of taking a step back from that and having a better understanding now being a few years in that the it's the process of, you know, every step we're taking while we're doing it is actually where I think the, um, the real craft in it is. So in our shop, we actually have um, Logan, one of our incredible, wonderful, amazing um, casketeers, as we call them. Um, he's, he's incredibly diligent and conscientious and very soulful in his work. And the wonderful thing is the actual end product is beautiful. It is strong. It, you know, it, it stands stress tests, you know, anything kind of practically speaking you're going to do, but process wise, he's really the one who keeps everyone on their toes in terms of, you know, reminding himself and reminding us that, you know, this is the last the very last thing that a human being's body will touch before it reunites with the earth and it will cradle someone's body. And that somebody is somebody's mom or their sister or their dad. Um, and really, you know, helping us remember, especially when it can get into kind of like a rote grind of doing repetitive tasks that, you know, these are, these are vessels, but they're also very sacred vessels for this reason. It's something that, you know, will actually return to the earth with the body, um, you know, and is very prayerful in his process, um, you know, as we all definitely try to be, and just really infusing something that's intangible into the, the process itself, um, and kind of, you know, hoping at the end of the day that the family, and even the human being who's resting in it, you know, though they've already died, can feel some sort of um, comfort or sort of spirit in that way. Um, and it's interesting. So in Hawaii, there are, in the past, there were various death care practices. Um, but what I find so fascinating about the various practices, and this holds across the world, is that if you step back and look at any indigenous community anywhere in the world in their death care practices, up until, you know, about a hundred years ago, when we've, you know, become a lot more industrialized and westernized in the world, all indigenous death care practices had one perfect thing in common and that every single one of them did absolutely no harm to the earth and death. They all used natural fibers, materials, resources, raw materials, things that were in the community. And while outwardly the practices can seem extremely different, you know, anything from exposure burial on these large pyres, you know, the vultures, you know, have their way with the body and are burned, et cetera, to, you know, very quiet, ceremonial, traditional practices. Um, you know, it's only up in the recent kind of decades that we actually started harming the earth and death. And so being able to sort of engage in this very rich, fulfilling process of crafting these eco caskets, although it wasn't necessarily um, a kind of like direct method and manner that Hawaiians used in the path, it abides by the same principles. 
So it's the, the protocol isn't necessarily there in terms of Hawaiian, but the principle is, which I also think is such an awesome distinction kind of in this process of really thinking about, um, you know, what we perpetuate. Are we perpetuating protocol of the past? Or are we perpetuating the principles that were always sort of deeply ingrained and intended in these practices? And so I've I've kind of come to this sort of like modern happy medium with myself as a Hawaiian that while I don't do, um, yeah, kind of the conspicuous Hawaiian ways of burial, it's still perpetuating that same spirit of, you know, having this incredibly light touch on the earth and using, you know, available local resources. So let's dive into these more spiritual concepts. You were quoted in an article saying that death is one of the things we all share, that it's an essential part of the human condition. I really felt that this was just another reminder of our inherent oneness as, as a human family. Baha'u'llah likened death to the process of birth, saying, the world beyond is as different from this world as this world is different from that of the child while still in the womb of its mother. So how do you see this knowledge impacting the way we could relate to one another in this life and the concept of the fragility of life itself? Well, I absolutely love, love, love thinking about how universal and indiscriminate death is, which just to make a distinction, um, I say that often when I talk to people and, and I've been reminded before that death is very discriminatory especially in the US and it's a very you know contentious topic in certain arenas. Um, and of course there are you know more cruel and unjust discriminate ways that human beings die but kind of removing removing ourselves from that part of the reality, just the fact that all human beings are designed to pass through this world and to eventually you know abandon our bodies at some point, I feel like that's one of the most humanizing realities I can possibly think of. You know, we share, by and large, very similar experiences as humans in this world. But just being able to walk down the street and look at any human being, you know, at any stage of their experience in this world and know for absolute certain that they also will die one day, I feel like is a, it's such a deeply humanizing, <laughs> almost kind of exhilarating reality. Like it's, it's just really, um, mm -hmm. yeah, it's incredible to think that we share this like almost, well, incredibly perfect, intimate, um, not just reality, but almost for some people secret that they're going to die. <laughs> um, even on the thinking about how indiscriminate our death is, you know, going back to the analogy that you mentioned earlier about the baby in the womb and developing in the womb and, you know, we're, we're in that space developing all these capacities and faculties and parts that are not actually functional or intended for the womb. You know, they're just intended for us to be able to thrive in this world when we get to this physical existence. And so for me, I just feel like spiritually, but also even logically, I think to myself, well, if this part was, you know, the kind of highest manifestation of that previous phase of development, then what is the highest manifestation of this stage of development? So if before the, the end goal was, you know, the tangible and reaching this world, 
then there must be something that's intangible because we know we die, because we watch people be buried back into the earth, and we understand that they are no longer using those faculties and capacities in that body, that, you know, something must persist beyond that. You know, and even if even if people don't share spiritual beliefs, which we're humans, so we don't all share the same spiritual beliefs, even thinking of it on a purely scientific and energetic level that, you know, we're humans and we don't create or destroy energy. And we absolutely understand that human beings are made of energy. And so, you know, even by that standard, we're eternal beings, we're perpetual and, you know, we become less orderly at some point, but the fact of that persistence is even a scientific truth, which I think is incredible. Well, this is a perfect time to now go into my next question, because we can't talk about life after death without exploring the Baha'i teaching of the life of the soul. So Baha'u'llah shares the following words, know thou of a truth that the soul after its separation from the body will continue to progress until it attaineth the presence of God in a state and condition which neither the revolution of ages and centuries nor the changes and the chances of this world can alter. It will endure as long as the kingdom of God, his sovereignty, his dominion, and power will endure. It will manifest the signs of God and his attributes and will reveal his loving kindness and bounty. I think this spiritual transformation into an internal space, which you kind of just alluded to, or condition that's continuously drawing nearer to the creator is so hopeful and enchanting. But do you have any thoughts on how this energy manifests itself in a physical scientific way? Or you're kind of on that train of thought. Could you could you keep going? <laughs> you know, regardless of what people actually believe in terms of if there is or is not a rational soul associated with a human being or you know, any existence beyond this existence, I guess my answer would kind of be the same of, of thinking of it even more on a scientific level, you know, of, of understanding that the energy persists and the atoms become less orderly at some point, but they then, you know, are absorbed into the soil, which then facilitates, you know, the mineral kingdom, which facilitates the plant kingdom, which facilitates the animal kingdom and the humans. Um, and so, you know, even on a, that energetic level, you know, we do go on forever, which, which is, is different than the concept of, you know, a, a very conscious belief and progression towards your creator. You know, essentially it's, I think of it as kind of a parallel of, you know, because the mineral kingdom is not the lowest kingdom, but let's say the first in terms of, you know, um, ascending order, the fact that, even energetically and atomically, we will, you know, go on to kind of nourish and nurture all of those kingdoms up to human beings also does show and signal some sort of ascension and progression, you know, because we are graduating through these different kingdoms, you know, whether you call that the atoms of the human and the energy or the soul or whatever the thing is, it still follows the same kind of trajectory of advancement. Now, let's talk about Baha'i burial practices and observances, which you've said are 100% environmentally sustainable. Could you just take a moment to walk us through the steps Baha'is take to prepare a person for death? We can start by the importance of writing a will, 
and talk through to the moment that someone is interred in accordance with Baha'i law, while also, if you don't mind, highlighting some of those mm-hmm. environmental implications. So one thing that I think is incredibly beautiful about Baha'i burial laws is that they are just by nature completely consistent with green burial laws. So as Baha'is, we're not embalmed upon death, so there's no sort of unnatural preservation of the body. And we're to be buried within an hour's journey of where we died, which in this day and age, that could be planes, trains, and automobiles. I'm, you know, in the past, I'm sure it was by horseback or donkey or foot. But um, the hour's journey holds. Um, we're meant to be buried as soon as possible after death. And we're meant to be buried in the writing, say, a fine hardwood crystal or stone casket, um, which I've thought a lot about the crystal and stone part and kind of thought through some of the maybe future implications of that. But that's a much longer conversation for another time. But the the kind of attainable um, one right now is the hardwood caskets. And the body is to be washed upon death, which is also such a beautiful practice, um, which holds through many different religious practices and ceremonies as well. And then shrouded in cotton or silk. And so by using the, again, there's nothing that explicitly says in the writings, you know, you have to have an eco burial or a green burial or using any of the sort of like Western modern words or terms that we use for it. Um, but just kind of looking at the cadence and expectations of all of those steps in the process, they just naturally follow, you know, much more environmentally conscious lines. Um, it doesn't say you have to have a biodegradable wood casket, but, you know, because we, in this day and age, we understand better now the implications of, you know, interring these chemicals in the ground or, you know, the chemicals reaching water tables, et cetera, um, for me, it's just more logical now that you can still abide by the Baha'i law of the hardwood casket and have it be something that's also biodegradable. You know, not a lot of excessive embellishments and metal and things on it that don't ever break down in the earth. Hmm. There's also the funeral service itself, and the only requirement is to recite uh, a prayer for the dead revealed by Baha'u'llah. I would say with, with the funeral, it's um, very similar to let's say Baha'i weddings, where are there are the kind of universal core sort of gestures or principles that we abide by, but then we infuse it with all kinds of beauty and a different aesthetics and culture, et cetera, um, to really, to make it this very rich, unique, intimate experience. We talked earlier about, kind of mentioned the, the importance of a will, which really just outlines the individual's wishes to be buried as a Baha'i. But before closing, I was hoping we can take a moment to chat about some of those more everyday, kind of more practical ways we can prepare ourselves for death, ways that might eliminate some of those anxieties that we have around this this, this transition from this world to the next. Yes. So the will and testament, of course, is a Baha'i law um, and so incredibly important. I think that we're kind of socialized to think I'm just going to very make a very generic sweeping statement, but I think especially in the West, we're socialized to think of death as something that happens to older people or sick people. 
we don't think of all of the, you know, many incidental, unexpected, you know, as the writings say, unheralded ways that in times that will actually die. Um, and so having the will and testament um, and really thinking of it as a law, like we think of any other law is so incredibly important. Um, I really try to strongly encourage my friends to have will writing dinner parties at their house actually um, and have, you know, templates they can use great music they choose and a good dinner and, you know, just kind of setting a, a different kind of tone that's dignified, but also really practical. Um, and I think that, you know, in addition to that, I think that, and I'm hoping actually that we're moving as a society towards not just documenting what our end of life wishes are, but really starting to expand our notion of the death space, you know, far beyond it just being individual wishes and kind of moving towards uh, this like, collective earth nourishing sort of movement together. So also documenting um, not just the things we want, but their eco implications. So we're, you know, sort of, it's almost like a, it's almost like a, a testament, you know, in and of itself, um, sort of stating that you understand the eco implications of your choices, number one, which is important. Um, it's even a form of accountability, even though you're no longer here. Um, and it also, I really feel like documentation is an act of love. It really helps to alleviate so much confusion and some families' contention with what the person wanted, um, why, you know, surmising what they meant by this thing or that thing. And then again, extending that to the ego implications of the wishes so that the family also understands, you know, they may live their lives very differently in their households, but they understand like, oh, you know, the environment was really important to mom and she was super clear about it here. And she definitely does not want to be embalmed or she wants a biodegradable casket and, and really getting explicit about those things as well. That's, that's really, really practical. I love the idea of a <laughs> will, a will party. Yeah, a will writing party. <laughs> um, <laughs> I can just imagine some of the music that would be included yeah, in that playlist. for sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Courtney, before we close, um, I'd love to hear about your plans for the future. You've got some exciting things kind of coming up, so or dreams even into the into the distant future. Could you just enlighten us on those before we bring this to a close? Yes. Well, um, my kind of overarching hope is that green burial spaces and green cemeteries and even private burial um, will really start to take shape. Um, you know, all across the U.S., across the world, but especially across the U.S., where we're definitely lagging behind um, in that arena and really hoping that, especially in Hawaii, that we can, as Pahiki, can, you know, secure a piece of land somewhere and have a completely green burial space where it's perpetual. So we're reusing um, the same plot, essentially, um, you know, every decade or so. And it really just being a place of really flourishing, beautiful native plants um, and sort of discontinuing the concept of headstones or of, you know, single plot cemeteries where, you know, they're indefinitely um, occupied and, you know, the forthcoming generations will have no opportunity to be buried in, you know, this land that was claimed by someone who came before. So... We've definitely got our sights set on, you know, a beautiful natural green burial space. Um, 
And then also just the hope that, and there are, you know, a dozen or so scattered around the U.S. kind of more conspicuous green burial cemeteries, but really just um, focusing on, yeah, trying to make that a reality in Hawaii. And then on top of that, also having the Paihi concept across, you know, eventually all the states. Um, and again, abiding by the same kind of small radius local supply chain principles and using the salvaged timber from those states to kind of handle and manage their own death care needs in that state, which also helps to curb the carbon footprint that we're currently experiencing where we're, you know, shipping millions of caskets crisscross all over the U.S. every year. Wonderful. That's really, those are really exciting things to look forward to. Um, Courtney, thank you so much for following your dreams <laughs> and starting and, and really uh, investing in time and resources and your knowledge and experience into this space and offering us a, an opportunity to discuss some of these very, very important uh, conversation topics and ideas. Um, I, I don't think I've ever been able to talk about it so directly in in my time with Cloud9. So I think there's a lot of value here, and I'm sure a lot of people listening in will um, come away with lots, much to think about. So thank you so much thank again you. for your time today. Thank you so much, Shadi. I really, really appreciate this. Wonderful. All the best. Thanks again. Thanks so much for listening to Cloud9. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Feel free to check out Baha'iteachings.org where you can find more Baha'i-inspired podcasts, videos, and articles. <laughs>